going to happen soon. I think what Mike is alluding to is the fact that I'm getting older. And the fact that I'm so croaky this morning, it's just sort of my way of bleeding sympathy, you know, or, or trying to get your sympathy as I'm aging. And <laughs> I'm only turning 39 this week, but it is that sort of defining year that, that puts 40 right in front of you, you know. So I'm going to really drink this year in. The Hatters, they, they blessed me by, by giving me this card that says, don't look now. And it's got a big Jaws on the front. And it says, it's another birthday and it's headed right at you. And so then, then it's the, the Jaws sort of, you know, thing. Yeah. So that's how I feel. Yeah. It's kind of exciting. I don't know how my voice is going to hold up. I'm going to try to drink, drink and cough my way through. But I am excited about where we're headed this morning in the Word of God. It's all about being slow to speak. And so I don't know if that's part of what the Lord is doing in my life to live this out. But um, tonight we do have um, True Love Waits. I want to put that before you. And be in prayer. If you're not going to be a part of that, just pray for the teenagers and the parents in our church. Very important, let's see, very important ministry for us to be a part of because it's talking about personal purity. And you know from your own experience how important a topic like that is in the life of a young adult and what it will mean for the rest of their lives. So let's pray for Randy, his ministry for the workers, for the co-workers who will be ministering there tonight, and to the parents. Also, a few other things to put before you. We have a progressive dinner that's coming up this Saturday. I want you all to be a part of that. If you need child care, that is available for you. We'll have child care here. It's a small donation for that, but just want you to participate in that. If if you're wondering whether or not you should, um, let me answer the prayer for you. Um, you should be a part of it because, anyway, it's a way for us to get to know each other and to interact. I think you can still sign up for that. You don't have to be a host home to, to participate, so just plan on coming, plan on being a part um, no matter what. Let's see, what else is going on? I, I want to mention one thing to you. Um, that is that baptism is an important command to be obeyed. We recently had a couple baptisms. If the Lord is tugging on your heart for you to follow through and be obedient to him, then not only do that for your own life and your own personal peace and blessing, because here we teach believers baptism, but also do it because it will bless the body of Christ to hear your testimony. We, I mean, nobody ever um, is not blessed by seeing a transformed life, right? And so we want to see gospel transformation, stir the waters of baptism, and have that take place. All right, well, now it is your turn to participate in fellowship together. I want you to stand up and greet and meet people around you for a few moments, and then we'll dig into the Word.
<clears throat> All right, let's return now to our seats. <clears throat> I am looking at James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. Our title this morning is Call to Action. Call to Action. Follow as I read this new section. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I read the second section here, though we won't touch this this morning. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I love the Word of God. I love, in particular, my Bible. I have several Bibles, but this is one that is near and dear to my heart right now because I've underlined it in certain ways and I know where to find things. And every now and then, when I get sick or tired, I will lose track of where I put my Bible. That ever happened to anyone? It's kind of a distressing thing, even though you can find the Bible online or on your phone, on your computer, you can grab another Bible, you could buy another Bible. To lose my Bible is a problem because I love it so much. And not because it's just sentimental to me, but because God speaks through his word to my heart. And so when I don't know where my Bible is, something's missing. There's a problem. And the other night I was up, and I think it was around midnight, and I was thinking, I don't really know exactly where my Bible is. I've looked on my desk here at church. I looked, you know, at home where I typically put it. And then it dawned on me. It's in the trunk of my car, of all places. You know, what a place to put your Bible, right? But I think it was at the end of the day, I was shuttling my kids home. I put their book bags in the trunk and I laid my Bible there. But it was 12 at night and it was snowing outside. But because I wanted to know where my Bible was, I went outside. You know, I dressed up, put coats on, a coat on, put boots on, and went out there and found my Bible. Because I knew I wouldn't be able to really sleep and rest well thinking I don't know for certain where my Bible is. It's an important book. It's an important book. This is a supernatural book. It's a a one-of-a-kind. There is no other holy scripture than what we have and what God has given us to possess and hold near near and dear to our hearts. It's what we are called to listen to and heed And follow. It's what the Holy Spirit uses in our lives to transform us from one level to the next in spiritual growth and life. 
And as a Bible student, I've gone through phases in my spiritual growth. When I first was a Christian at 17, I was into the Bible with this sort of naive innocence. I had not really been trained in the Word of God. I'd been to Sunday school. I'd heard the Bible stories. I'd heard the lessons. But when I first was transformed, the Bible took on this sort of spark of life in my heart where every time I would open the Bible, things would be jumping out at me. And I'd be underlining verses that Isaiah was preaching to Israel and prophesying over Israel. And I would be applying them directly to my life and heart as if God was speaking exactly to me on that evening from the Word of God. No matter where I was, Old Testament or New Testament, my mind and heart was just imbibing the Word of God. I was alive and on fire. One scholar I read this week called that the first naivete. It's where you're just, you've got that innocence with the Word of God. And you might remember in your own life when you were first transformed and you're reading the Bible, how things that you would study would connect with a sermon you would hear or a conversation you would have or an interaction you would have with someone where God was just putting the puzzle pieces of your life together with the Word of God. Can you, can you relate to that? Do you remember that? Do you know that experience? Well, then I moved away from that naivete and went to Bible college of all things. And I began to study God's word in its original context. And I began to find out that um, years and years and thousands and thousands of years ago, prophets were speaking specifically to Israel. And I found out that there were people who believed that that either applies directly to us or it doesn't. Or some people believe that the promises of Israel are only fulfilled in the church. And I began to learn that there are all kinds of debates and things that you need to think through to be a good interpreter of scripture. Then I moved a little farther away from God's word and this naive experience of of just hearing from God directly as I searched the scripture, and I went to seminary. (laughs) And I I learned Hebrew. I had learned some Greek in college, and I was learning more Greek in seminary. And in Hebrew, I was able to read the Bible now from the right to the left. I I was reading in reverse, and I was memorizing all kinds of terms linguistically. And I was reading in a way that was critical and scholarly. And I was able to follow all kinds of scholarly debates. And then I did more schooling after that. But I want to tell you something. Along the way, the Lord has spoken to me through his word. And I'm so appreciative for the Bible teachers that invested time in my life so that I could hear from him. But as of late, I am returning to what I would call a second naivete, where I'm opening the word of God with innocence and he's speaking to my heart. And though I read the Bible critically and in terms of its context and I I read it and read scholars every week to help explain the word of God, when I approach the word of God as I'm preparing for you each week, I'm approaching it devotionally. I want to hear from him. I want God to speak into my heart I want him to speak into my life. I want God to tell me what I need to do and how I need to live, whether I'm in the Old Testament or the New Testament or in the Gospels or if I'm reading prophecy about what's going to happen. God's word is alive. And I'm here to tell you his word does not return void. And the experience I had as a baby Christian where he would tie events and circumstances together with my life, in my life, with other teachers, with other sermons, with other relationships, and how things would intersect. That was all happening then, and it happens 
now in my life today, and it should happen in yours. Because the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing, right? It's inspired. It gets underneath the skin, into the bone marrow of your life. It's the Word of God, and we should value it. Two things are always happening when you encounter the Word of God. This is our statement for this morning. God's Word always raises two questions about you. Here's the first question. Did you listen? Did you listen? And the second question we're not going to put up on the screen yet, but it's will you respond? We're going to look at that next week. The first question that's raised when you open the Word of God is, did you listen? Look at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Being quick to hear. Now what James is talking about here in verse 19 is not just some sort of proverbial statement where he's saying, look, in terms of your character, in terms of your marriage, in terms of um, your boss, or in terms of other relationships, when people confront you or say things, just you know, keep a muzzle on your mouth and listen. And be slow to speak because that'll get you out of a lot of trouble. James is going far deeper than that. James is talking to an early church that was struggling to trust God even when life hurts. They were going through trials. They were ostracized from the comforts of their life. Uh, They were struggling to, to understand what is God doing in my life because life is really hard. I've given my life to the Messiah. I'm following him and life is difficult. Remember in verse 13 of James 1, James was saying, look, when you're encountering trials, don't let that turn in your heart into a temptation where you will blame God for why things are going rough in your life and in your heart. Don't directly or indirectly blame him. And then last week we talked about the goodness of God. Not only should you not blame God, but you should never doubt the goodness of God in your life. Because verse 17 says that every good and perfect gift is flowing down from the Father of lights in your life. Even if it seems bad, God is always good and unchangingly good. And first hour of last week, I mentioned an illustration of the goodness of God and how that applies to your life, where Joseph, who he was thrown out of his family. He, he was said to be dead, lied about, sold into slavery by his own brothers, by his own flesh and blood. He was distanced from his father, whom he loved dearly, and put in prison. And he struggled through that, but always trusted the goodness of God in his life. And we see that in Genesis 39.9 where he's in Potiphar's house at that certain point, the steward, the owner of all things, acting as a proxy for Potiphar. And the one thing he could not have was Potiphar's wife, who was throwing herself at him for immorality, day after day after day, saying, lie with me. And Joseph, to combat that kind of immorality, thought about the goodness of God. And he said, listen, Potiphar has given me everything in this household to be a steward of and to enjoy. The one thing he's not given me is you because you are his wife. How can I sin against him and against God? That's the goodness of God in our lives. And when we doubt the goodness of God, when life is hard, we can be tempted and vulnerable. But Joseph was not. 
Secondly, in verse 18, we talked about how the ultimate illustration of the goodness of God is salvation. You're saved. You were recreated. Old things in your life are passed away and everything is new. You were bought with a price. You were ransomed by God. The imperishable seed of the word of God entered into your heart and gave you a new birth. You were brought forth by what? The word of truth, the Bible. This is the gospel, the good news of Christ and it invaded your life. And that's why you know God is good. Even when life is hard, you know your heart's been transformed and set to be with God forever in heaven. The goodness of God is in your life. And so now he's taking a transition into verse 19 saying, know this, know the goodness of God in your life. Know that he brought you forth by the word so that when you hear the word of God, you'll be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to anger. That's what he's saying. Remember your salvation. It came by the word. The seed was implanted into your life. And then now you can grow in grace as you listen to the word of God. He says in verse 19, be quick to hear and slow to speak. That reminds me of the fact that, you know, most of us here have two ears and one mouth. And we should use each organ accordingly, right? in terms of the proportion of listening twice as much as we would speak. And as I was leaving this morning, I have to confess, uh, you know, you sort of strap the kids into the car. You, you have the opportunity to either bridle your tongue and be godly or to speak too quickly. And I spoke too quickly and I said, wow, isn't it great that I'm preaching in a few moments on being slow to speak? What a hard thing that is to do in our lifetime. And I said, Judy, this will be a great opportunity for me to confess and put myself out there that I do not naturally find myself as a person who is slow to speak. Is that true? I, I, just, I just don't. I, I'm a preacher. I'm a person who likes to speak. I like to read a lot about the word of God and then speak it out. But James 3.1 is a great sort of countermeasure in my life. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James 3 is filled with fear, is it not? Godly, holy fear that will rain down on our church congregation when we get there because we know how powerful our tongues have been to bless God but then to curse God and man. Our tongues are the mighty organ of our bodies that can do so much damage so quickly. Like a candle that was knocked over in the great Chicago fire when somebody was milking a cow in the farm country that ultimately set a blaze that destroyed the whole city. Like a rudder that guides a ship through tumultuous waters. Like a bit that's in the horse's mouth that steers a 2,000-pound thoroughbred. Our tongue is very, very powerful. We need to guard it. The Proverbs speaks to this. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 18, it says, when there are many words, there will be transgressions, right? Proverbs 17, 27, he who restrains his words is wise. He who has a cool spirit has understanding. Don't you respect people who have a cool spirit? And I don't mean the, you know, sort of 
either war hero that, you know, distances himself from the crowd and he's got the cool spirit individually or independently with this sort of robust manhood thing. I mean the person who interacts with people, engages people, and he's a genuine listener. And when something comes up that you know that person disagrees with, you just watch them chill out and be cool about it in their spirit. They're not quick to make their arguments. They're just listening with a smiling countenance, patiently letting things come as they will in a dialogue. I respect people like that. I am not that person. I'm not someone who is naturally cool-spirited. I'm just not. It's a temptation to speak out. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, right? But a harsh word does what? It stirs up anger. We have a lot of power in our speech, and we need to be careful. We need to heed these words, especially in terms of the Word of God, when the Word of God is presented to us. That's the context for what James is talking about here. It's the Word of God going out, either individually or corporately, to the church. And the response is seen in verse 20. You kind of move from examining your heart in verse 19 to examining your motive in verse 20. There were people who had bad motives, where they would hear the word of God and their, their immediate response would be to speak up about that. Sort of justifying their own anger for what had just been said in terms of righteous indignation. Have you ever met people like that? They say, look, I'm just indignant. I'm a man of justice or I'm a woman of justice, so I need to speak up right now. That's what James is calling down. He's saying, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The word anger is, in the original language, orge, which is also translated wrath in the New Testament. Orge. This is not, in verse 19, talking about the orge, or the wrath coming out of the mouth yet. In verse 19, where he says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, he's talking about this seething, smoldering, um, sort of volcano effect that's, that's ramping up in the heart. And then in verse 20, that's when that volcano explodes, okay? An elder and I were counseling, co-counseling a lady who's from a different church coming to our church for help. She's got an advocate friend with her as a support there, so it's a really appropriate and strong counseling environment. This gal's been through a lot. She's been abused and beaten and is sort of on the brink of divorce, but possibly now being rescued from that. And she confessed something this week where I immediately turned to the passage I was thinking about because she said that the week before in counseling, when this elder was speaking the word into her life, she said, did you notice that my head kind of went down for about 20 minutes when you were talking to me? You were talking to me about the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God in my life. And you were saying you should think about even your rough, very difficult experiences as something that God could use in your life or could be using in your life. Did you notice how I just kind of covered up and put my head down? She said, I physically, and I think she meant physically and spiritually, she said, I could not hear anything that you were saying. She was spiritually deaf. And as she began to confess, she actually poured out what was going on in her mind as the word of God was being counseled into her life. And she said, in my heart, I was saying to you, shut up. Stop speaking to me. I don't want to hear that. And in her heart, 
She was drowning out the word of God that was being spoken into her life. What was beautiful about this whole experience is she was confessing an openness to the counsel and an openness to the word of God in her life. She was beginning to have ears to hear and the spiritual deafness was wearing off. But so often we become people who are blind to the truth and we become so familiar with truth that we can inadvertently find ourselves being just as deaf as this counselee was, right? We've heard it so many times before. It's old hat. Okay, I've memorized that. Okay, I, I remember that Bible study on that passage. And we're not listening to the Holy Spirit's work through the word in our lives, right? We can become anesthetized, callous to the truth. It's a very dangerous place to be. I was thinking about our grand ministry of Christian education here, and I love it so much. My kids are benefiting so much in our school, K through 12th grade. But so much truth is given through those Bible classes, through the lives of the teachers, through devotionals, through the prayers, through the singing times. And my prayer is that the children of the Ministry of Grace Christian School would be those who have ears to hear, right? We should all pray together against children and young adults getting a hard heart. And you've heard it before where someone comes all the way through the school and ultimately finds themselves walking away from the Lord. How can that happen? You know, how is it that somebody can divert away from the church? Well, it's someone who began to harden up instead of softening when the word of God was presented. You probably heard it said that the same sun that melts the clay will harden the wax, right? The same sun that melts the wax will harden the clay. The word of God is powerful always, but we have to have a softness and a receptivity so that it will transform our lives. And we have to examine our motives to make sure that we have softness towards the word of God. Always the church here, if you turn over to James 4, 1 and 2, they were quarreling, they were fighting, there were passions that were warring within them, verse 1. And then ultimately those desires of anger and hate turned into public quarreling, verse 2 of James chapter 4. That's what happens when the church is not receptive to the truth. So what do you do about it? What do you do about it? Well, you not only keep your soil soft by examining your heart, by examining your motives, you secondly need to remove the impediments in your heart. Sin is what keeps you from hearing the truth. That's what clogs the pipe, your sin, ultimately, always. Our sins are what keeps us from getting the very deliverance that we need from our sins that comes from the word of God. It's kind of a terrible catch-22 to not be a hearer of the word of God. And in verse 21, James says, Therefore, put away all filthiness. Stop there. You know what James is saying? He's saying that you as a believer need to be aggressive with your sin. Aggressive. I think it's so easy for us to say, listen, the Lord will work on me over time, right? I do have some natural proclivities, some natural bents towards certain sins. I have besetting sins, but, you know, he'll work on me. And then, then you wonder, why is it that your life is not very devotional right now? You know, why is it that you don't believe you're hearing from God? Where is that first 
brand new baby Christian experience in my life now. Where's the second naivete? I don't, I don't have that. But, but you're not dealing aggressively with your sins. Colossians has a lot to say about that. Colossians 3 talks about putting off our sins. And literally, Colossians 3, 5 says that we're supposed to put to death Therefore, what is earthly in you is what Paul said to the church. We're to mortify, we're to kill sin in our lives. And you know what? If you don't call the issues of your life that are genuine sins, if you don't call them sins, then you are doing yourself a disservice. That's why James says, and that's why Paul says, to be aggressive, to remove obstacles. It's like furrowing the ground of your heart and making it soft. It's putting water in it and removing the logs and the stones, and you're clearing it so that, so that there can be life and growth in the soil. So we can receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls. The same word that saved you initially is the same word that God keeps planting into our lives so that we will grow therein. In Romans chapter 13, Paul also said sort of a violent, to use holy violence in our lives against our sin. He's saying the night is far gone, Romans 13, 12. The day is at hand, so then, watch this, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. He lists those works of darkness in verse 13 and then verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. He's saying, look, do battle with your sins. Be aggressive with your sins. Look at your sins and, 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 and take, take time and work at your at your life and take it off, just strip it from you. That's, that's the idea of dealing with your sins. You're, you're ripping it away from you. But you got to first call a spade a spade. The Bible says that we work out our salvation with what? Fear and trembling. This is fear and trembling work where we're doing battle and we're engaging our sins and ripping them off or pulling them out of our lives. We're ripping the weeds at the root to get rid of the sins that are ensnaring us and keeping us from relating to our God. That's what we sacrifice when we hang on to sin. We need to let it go. We need to declare war with ourselves. Holy violence. It's by violence that we shall enter the kingdom of God, says the Gospels. We are to fight the good fight of faith, right? Fighting, agonizomai, striving, wrestling, working hard. I taught at the Alaska Men's Ministry yesterday. Just a few people came to my seminar. I, I had prepared it just to teach on biblical masculinity, biblical manhood, sort of trying to cut through the conversation of what is, it, what is a real man, is he tough, is he tender, and defining manhood by looking at the person of Jesus Christ. And I had a handout um, in that regard. Who is Jesus? He was tough, he was tender. What does it mean to be an elder? An elder is gracious and also strong with doctrine. It's a good lesson, but the night before I was up and sort of had my cold going on, so I was easily awakened, but I just went down and began to look online at a certain blog, 
and a certain article that I was familiar with. And it was related to masculinity. And it was written by a guy named Wesley Hill, who was part of my church um, that I was a part of down in Little Rock as an associate pastor. He was, he was involved in our um, staff meetings. We were sort of discipling him. He was a brilliant guy. His family came to our church. He had gone to Wheaton. He had studied under John Piper at Bethlehem Baptist in their institute. He had taught in a seminary at Cameroon. I knew him well, good reader, very gentle in his spirit, good thinker. Ultimately, he went to Cambridge and studied more to get his Ph.D., But there was an article online that greatly distressed me that he wrote. And the article was this. It was titled, A Few Like You, Will the Church, What Will the Church Be? Will it be a church for the homosexual Christian? And in this article, he began to describe his own bent toward homosexuality. Not that he had ever acted out on it but that he struggled in his heart with homosexuality his whole life. The disturbing part about it is twofold in my mind. First of all, throughout the article, he really never names homosexuality as a sin. He's not aggressively calling a spade a spade. And secondly, the title homosexual Christian is something that is a contradiction in and of itself. I mean, just replace that word with any other sin in the Bible. A proud Christian, an arrogant Christian, a lustful Christian, an immoral Christian, a lying Christian, a a, a Christian who steals, the, the Christian thief, right? And to me, it's a contradiction because the word means little Christ. That's what Christian means, little Christ. And so you could have the the little Christ who steals, the little Christ who's arrogant, the little Christ who is lustful. Now, I'm not saying that his transparency isn't commendable. It is. He was exposing himself and trying to reach people who have struggled from their birth all the way through in regards to homosexuality. But what discourages me is that he provides a hopeless testimony as he wrote this article. He's actually written it, expanded it into a book called Washed But Waiting. And the point is, is that he believes he's a Christian who's been washed, but that he will never be released from the vice grip of this sin until he's in glory. And so now he's destined to always be single, destined to always be ensnared, destined to always be tempted this way, and destined always to be hopelessly lonely in his life. That to me, my friends, is not the gospel. That's not the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, it lists a lot of different people in Corinth who were struggling with a lot of different sins. And you know what? In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, it says that people who are ensnared, who are dominated by these certain sins like sexual immorality or idolatry or being adulterers or those who practice homosexuality, they're not going to enter the kingdom of God. But look at verse 11. The gospel intervenes, and such were some of you. You were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And I don't think you can get from verse 9 to verse 11 
unless you call the sin for what it is. Because the gospel is more mighty and more powerful than any sin and can deliver anyone from anything. Jesus is more powerful than that sin, the sin of homosexuality. He's more powerful than any sin. I was reading um, different people who were reviewing his article and in his book, people I respect who were, who were conceding that, you know, it's fine that he wrote this article and said it in the way that he said it. And, and you know how you can read through the blogosphere where different people are responding and a lot of people were giving affirmation to his article. But then this one young gal sort of stood up and she said, you know, I just don't hear any of you calling homosexuality an abomination as the Old Testament does. And I don't hear any of you referencing Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't also hear any of you calling it a sin. And ultimately, the idea is that you can be delivered from this sin. And then someone else wrote in the blogosphere, listen, it was a man who said, I've struggled with that sin my whole life from birth. But the gospel has delivered me from the domination of that sin and I'm married now, I've got children. Yes, do I have a struggle that I have to kill and fight against? Absolutely, but the gospel has delivered me from that sin. Now, isn't that a hope-filled testimony? It is. We need to be willing to risk ourselves in conversations and talk these things through if you're struggling with these sins or these areas in your life so that you can receive grace The saddest part to me is that my friend in Little Rock is setting himself up to have a hopeless testimony and perhaps to be without the hope of the gospel because he's not dealing brutally and aggressively with this sin that he can come out of by the gospel in the grace of God. Well, in James, James goes on to say that we not only need to be aggressive with our, our sin, all filthiness, but we need to also deal with rampant wickedness. This is, talk, this is where James is moving from specific sins that we see in our lives to the stuff that we don't see. This is where we are saying and admitting that we are really clothed in wickedness. It's rampant wickedness. We are overflowing with sin in our lives. So it's not just dealing acutely with our sins, but it's dealing comprehensively with all of our sins and saying, Lord, I know that these are the sins I'm confessing to you, but there's a whole boatload more, so just give me more grace. Let me remove anything in my life. Expose things to me. Maybe you would want to even ask people, do you see something in my life that you see that I'm unaware of that I can deal with and confess to God and get right so that I can hear from him again in the word of God? You know, there's a beautiful picture in Zechariah chapter 3 where Joshua, who was the high priest of Israel, a different Joshua than the one who took over for Moses when the children of Israel were going into the promised land. This was a Joshua in the minor prophet age where Israel was again on the cusp of sinking into Babylonian captivity. And Joshua is is shown to be standing for Israel in heaven before the throne of God and being accused for his own wickedness. This is the man who's the holiest man in all of Israel representing Israel and saying, deliver us from captivity. And it pictures Satan accusing Joshua of being unworthy to be this priest because he's wrapped and robed in sin. But God the Father looks at Jesus Christ in that story. You have to look at it later. 
And Jesus is called the angel of the Lord. And he says, unrobe him of his filthy garments and replace him, place for him around him a robe of righteousness. That's what we have. That's what we have at salvation. And that's what we have ongoingly in our lives as we do battle with our sins and we enjoy the grace of Christ in our lives. We are robed in the righteousness of Christ. We stand in grace. And so because of that, verse 21 goes on and it says, and receive with meekness the implanted word. Receive with meekness the implanted word. You know, to be a real man and to be really more and more like Jesus Christ, you need to be meek. You think about the way the world defines manhood or way, the way even most churches define manhood. You know, working on your truck or, you know, chewing tobacco, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> Not saying anything against that per se, but all that to say, just compare you know, sort of the the macho man defined by our culture, even in our church with the fruit of the Spirit. All men are called to be loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, filled with kindness, generousness, meekness, and self-control. And grace, right? This is the heart of a, a godly man. This is a picture of Christ, is to be meek, is to be humble. I was thinking of how Jesus received the word of God in the Garden of Gethsemane. The ultimate self-sacrificial pouring out is symbolized where he's saying, oh God, oh Father, I'm struggling. I, I know not only the physical punishment I'm about to undergo, but the cup of wrath that I'm about to drink, which is your wrath against the sins that are going to be placed on my shoulders and it will be unbearable. And the Son of God, who is God himself, is begging God the Father to be released from this burden. And he's saying, I don't, I don't want to do this, but Lord, not my will, your will be done. That's meekness and that's strength. In humility, where Jesus, as the ultimate warrior, took your sins on himself because he received the word of God at that point and said, not my will, but your will be done. And as believers, that's what we're called to do is to receive the word of God, right? To receive it. And as you receive the word of God, you'll find that you're growing from one level of glory to the next. We don't want to have the soil that's hardened, the hard soil. Remember Matthew 13? It was so hard that the seed kind of bounces, it pings out to the sidewalk area where Satan can just swoop it out. We don't want to have the heart that's crowding out the soil, crowding out the seed as it goes into the soil and choking it out. Those are the worries and cares of the world. We don't want to have the soil that's shallow, that has a rock bed a few inches beneath the surface where it's like trying to grow um, a plant on a sidewalk and you put the dirt down and it's just a few inches deep and the root goes down and hits the ground and it springs up, you know, the weed or the, the foliage immediately, but, it, but immediately burns up and withers away. We don't want to be like that. We want soft, watered uh, hearts that, that where the obstacles have been ripped out so that we can be receptive and receive what verse 21 says, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. 
I like how James puts it because he's saying that it's the word that was already planted in your life. Remember, as believers, and he's affirming them, saying, listen, the gospel already took root in your life. You're saved. But you should not presume upon your salvation. You need to recognize that just as you receive the word of God, you need to continue to be receptive. Remember the two questions. Did you listen when the word of God was preached to you? Well, I listened once when I was saved. And you need to have an ongoing relationship with God where you continue to listen to the truth. You're listening to the word of God, which is able to save your souls. You say, well, salvation is a, an act, a one-time event that happened in the past, right? Why is James talking about the word of God that wasn't planted that's going to save me? Well, this is how you need to understand it. James is talking about salvation in a comprehensive or in a big picture snapshot. As a believer, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is in place. For by grace have you been saved, past tense, by faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3, 5 says, he saved us. I mean, we hang on to those truths. We stand in grace because we were saved. We are now no longer under condemnation, right? That's true. That's the past tense perspective of our salvation. We are justified. We are robed in the righteousness of Christ, and no one can change that. But there's also the sense in which that Paul promised that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. So not only were we saved, but the word of God is preserving us and growing us in our salvation. And that's where Philippians 2.12 says we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's spiritual growth, but we were saved and the word of God presently is saving us. It's preserving us. And then in the future, ultimately, all of the sin that's still hanging on will be taken away from us as we are brought into glory in the future. 2 Timothy 1 verse 12 says we are guarded by the gospel until that day, right? So the word of God, it it was used to save us, it's growing us, and ultimately it's keeping us until we are ultimately delivered into glory. So salvation is past, it's present, and it's future. It's future. Why does James say that to us in verse 21? Because the Christian life is dynamic. As you are listening to the word of God, you are either someone who is smoldering in your heart in disagreement with the truth, or you're someone who's progressing in grace and in truth and in spiritual growth. And it's all leading to a final end, which is where you will be delivered into heaven. You ever wondered to yourself out loud, if I don't want to hear the word of God now, why should I really be convinced that I'm ultimately going to want to sing the gospel forever and eternity? If you don't sort of ultimately come to the point where you say, well, the reason why I don't want to hear the word of God now is because I'm being disobedient and I need to repent and soften my heart again. So I want heaven. I want future grace. Then you might need to question 
where you are in the first place and say, has the word of God, the seed which is imperishable, 1 Peter 1, 23, has that seed gone in in the first place? Because if it hasn't, that's the greatest news that you need to hear, that the seed of the gospel, the word of God, can transform your life to make you a receptive believer, someone who is growing in grace. Now I'm going to use an illustration that uh, I wasn't completely sure of, but I'll use it and explain it as I go. But it's in reference to Napoleon Bonaparte, and he was called the emperor of France because of all of his wartime success in the 1800s. And he was a man who graduated 42nd in his class out of 50, but he was a wartime genius nevertheless. And part of his success and genius was pointed to the fact that he was a great leader and communicator, even in the midst of battle. Now, you know, with bullets flying and cannons booming and and all kinds of distress going on and blood and guts, that it's hard sometimes to get a message from the top guy to the generals that is clear, understood, and applied and obeyed. And so the way that Napoleon dealt with that, because they're about a century away from radio communication, is... He would take a person who he would call a marginal idiot. Now, this is where you have to laugh or I'm going to feel really bad. But anyway, he would call someone a marginal idiot. You know, sign me up, right? And he would bring somebody in who, who, who could barely read. And he, he, would, he would tell that person the order. And if that person could spit the order back to him with clarity, then he would say, okay, I can send the order. But if that person did not understand the order and could not articulate it back to him, then he would rewrite the order in Command Central and then re-explain it and see if it was going to work. The point of this is simply that, that James is saying it's not enough for the communication to go out. The communication has to be understood. Are you listening to God's word? Because if you're not a hearer of God's word, then you're certainly not going to be an effective doer of God's word. And that's where we're headed next week, being doers of the word of God. We need to be like that teenager who memorizes that pop song where the lyrics are ever available in the mind. And the word of God needs to be ever cycling through our minds and in our lives where we are hearing the word of God in our hearts and applying it at all points in our lives. A few points of application. I have the application sheet every week for you. It's called the take-home points. You can grab them before the sermon if you would like. I don't mind that at all. It's good for you to take notes sometimes on these things. Number one, you might need to experience a second naivete with your Bibles. Not a bad goal. Examine your hearts. See where you're at. Number two, over-familiarity with God's word, apart from faith, will destroy your soul. Now, I was pretty strong with that point, and I meant to be. If you're just hearing the word of God, and this is sort of repeat data to you, and you're not receptive, it will harm your spiritual life. And we need to be warned, even as we teach our children, that they're not just singing Bible songs or learning Bible lessons, but they need to heed the reverence of the word of God and the dynamic behind it. Number three, it's easy to rename sins with righteous titles. It's easy to say, I'm going to pop off and be angry in the name of being righteously indignant when, in fact, we need to humble ourselves and be slow to speak. Number four, 
There's no gentle approach for dealing with sin. We need to be aggressive. Let's call sin, sin, and deal with it aggressively. Because why? It provides hope in the gospel. You want grace? Be violent with your sin on the front end. Number five, the gospel word saved you, is saving you, and will save you in the end. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and your truth. We thank you that you are a God who is speaking. And I pray, God, as you have spoken to us this morning in your truth, that we would not be hypocritical, but we would listen. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And we know we've believed, but Lord, help our unbelief. Help us stretch and grow and take in the word of God so that we will be molded and shaped into the Christ's image. Make us more and more like him because we love him most. Thank you for our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand now for our final closing. I want to encourage you. If you've not yet been baptized, we believe in believer's baptism. It's the first step of obedience. It's a good opportunity to publicly share your life and your heart with the congregation to show yourself to be a transformed life. See me afterwards if you'd like any counsel about being saved or being baptized. Also, on the table over here, and I think in the bulletin, we are promoting a parent baby dedication that's coming up. That's March the 20th. I love these events. We haven't done it yet, but I've wanted to. And it's where you stand up. And you're not just dedicating your child out of a, oh, sort of, how sweet moment. This is a, a public sort of statement that you are desiring, not perfectly, but your desire is to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We'll have a picture on the screen, Lord willing, and a verse to sort of um, uh, make a visual effect and impact. You'll be able to see the baby up on screen, but then also um, we will dedicate parents and babies in the raising of children. So see the information table for that as well. Go in grace and peace and grow a lot this week. You're dismissed. Thank you.